Welcome to Kites and Strings, the podcast about creativity. My name is Steve Plume. My co-host, Catherine Shenock, and I are both art therapists and licensed clinical professional counselors, in addition to being creatives. In this podcast, we explore creativity, paying particular attention to the tension so many people experience when trying to live a creative life. We liken it to that which is present between a colorful, artful kite and its stable, grounded strength. Along the way, we interview fabulous guests who have found their own success living their creative lives. And before we get to introducing our guests today, let me yap at you just a little bit about visiting www.patreon.com. There, you can look up Kites and Strings, and you'll find that a pledge of just a few dollars a month would be not only a nice gesture, it'll really help us keep this show going. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of talking with John Langford. He's been called a punk alt-country pioneer, having founded and having been the guitarist for the band The Mekons, which is considered one of Britain's first wave of punk bands. They started around 1977, and they kicked it into the 80s, but they're still getting together to play and record from time to time, even up until today. Now, in the mid-90s, John also founded the Waco Brothers. They're out of Chicago, and they combine punk and country. He's had several other musical projects, and he's also an accomplished visual artist who has exhibited in several high-profile galleries. We catch up with him before he's set to do a show in Homewood, Illinois, at a place called Rabbit Brewing. Long story short, he's had a long and creative career, and we start this episode where John's string-grabbing and kite-flying began. Sometimes when we start this podcast, we, we start with what people are doing now, and um, and then we kind of do what I refer to as sort of a Star Wars trick, where we go back to the beginning. <laughs> you have been around for a long time doing some really cool music, and here's I'm going to give you a little bit of a small bit of my history. I grew up in Rockford back in the '80s. Cheap drink. My, yeah, my favorites. Yeah, I, I saw them. Like I think played my high school and such. They're wonderful. Really, uh-huh. fantastic. I went to school with Robin Zander's sister, and and he was. They, they were just around Rockford. Of course, everybody was, you know, hating on them for selling out, but they were just a bunch of jealous other bands. Um, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things about Rockford is we were far enough away from the Chicago market that we didn't get anything like XRT or any out, any radio stations that would play anything other than classic rock and pop. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't until MTV came around that I was introduced to other things. And I was steady on feuding with my dad about rock versus his country thing. And oh, I, that sounds familiar. Right. Right. Had I known there was this thing developing and building that you were part of with sort of the alt country and fusing punk with, with um, you know. Yeah, that was around the same time, but mid 80s. Yeah. We were kind of all washed up as punk rockers. So, you know. <laughs> you were the Mekon started out as a, you know, a kind of ground zero y sort of punk rock band where we believed that, you know. Uh-huh. Being able to play your instruments was possibly a bad thing. <laughs> it, was it was better to be, you know, I don't know what we, we were doing. Some very, very primitive banging uh-huh. around, and, and uh, you know, the lyrics were quite smart. And I think it was, 
it was more of an art school project. It was very un- unambitious, I'd have to uh-huh. say. We, were, we weren't really plotting, you know, a career of any sort. We just were kind of like enjoying the moment. And it was, we got quite a lot of notoriety, ended up on a major label. And then by the mid 80s, that had all evaporated because we kind of comp- the limitations of what we were doing became apparent. And, uh, <laughs> right. and we all kind of wandered back into our bedrooms and we were all obsessed with what well, our friends were into, you know, like acid house music and <laughs> stuff like that and electronics. We were, we were liked all that, but we were, we got obsessed with Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers and Patsy Cline and people like that. Is that where things like the Waco brothers and stuff, well, the Waco brothers came well, that was a lot later. later. That, that was, was a lot when later. I moved, to, I moved to the states in '92, but I only I moved to Chicago in '92. But I only moved to Chicago really because I'd been here quite a lot with the with the Mekons. And when when we put out we put out an album that people can kind of construed as being a, a, our version of a country and western album, but it was actually you know us kind of absorbing a lot of that those american roots influences that then making something kind of weird and punk rock and mm-hmm. uh, but it when we, it came out on a sort of on our own label but through a distributor in new york in the north of england and uh they were really shocked because it sold <laughs> sold really well no one no one was expecting that and we were wow. saying where who, who's buying it where is it getting sold and people it's getting sold in, in america so and it was in Chicago, New York, and so we, we better get over there. That sounds like you know they were selling. We got to reprint it. You've sold out the first pressing. So I mean, we had friends in Chicago. You know, a DJ guy called Terry Nelson from Chicago had been involved in the actual making of that record. He'd been hanging around with us and introduced us to uh, Dick Taylor, who was the original guitarist in the Pretty Things, and he was actually been in the Rolling Stones in the very first lineup. Wow. Huh. He got Dick to come along, and we suddenly it was also the time of the miners' strike. So we, like I said, we've been in our bedrooms fiddling with electronics and listening to country music, and not really doing much. And when the miners' strike happened, Margaret Thatcher's great, you know, crusade against the working classes, uh, we we felt we should support the miners in some sort of practical way where we could try and raise money for the the families and the, you know the, the the workers who were on this year long strike and. So we put a proper band back together. So that was, you know, that was the return to playing live. And then, then we ended up touring the states every year till till I moved to Chicago. Wow, wow. So there's these things that you put together. It sounds like it was kind of a surprise to you that they were they were. It was all a surprise after the initial. Well, the initial kind of Mekons thing was a surprise that anyone would be interested. We thought we were just the Gang of Fours. Mm-hmm. support band and just their stupid mates who hung around with them and we were just like, enjoying the you know the, the fun of being at these punk rock gigs because the energy was great and it was all completely homemade and there were no rules and it was it was really great fun but the fact that we got you know records out and then we ended up signing to virgin records and recorded at the manor which was you know where van morrison recorded <laughs> it was <laughs> It was it was very strange and uh, you know like this kind of industry. I think punk rock really shook people up, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, they didn't really know what was going on for a while. So lots of strange bands were getting signed and then dropped fairly quickly. But uh, 
for us, we we ended up doing the whole thing again, like in the late eighties. We ended up in signed to A and M in Los Angeles, you know, with an with an album, and that was again. But what have we done this again? You know what's going to happen. You know we're going <laughs> to get thrown off and then have to regroup again, and that's exactly what happened. But for us, it was well, why not do that? Let's see, this is a new experience. Let's do it. And, and by that time, the you know, the band had coalesced, and it's pretty much the same band now. Uh, all these years later, that was playing in nineteen eighty five. You have the same band now, like the same essentially core core people you're playing with that you did in 1985. Yeah. How has that happened? Uh, I think we about don't do bands. very much. Okay, because <laughs> I think about <laughs> bands and like like a lot of times I've had friends who've been in bands and and like that always seems to be the demise of the band is that at some point someone derails off and gets focused on something else and and that it. it what was a group of people making really great music ends up falling apart because there's not that that's long-term connection. Um, so when I hear about like bands that have stayed together a long time, or I look at the, at bands like, you know, like the Rolling Stones, like that have just been together for so long. That's the thing that really amazes me, you know, Cher performing on her 900th tour is great. That's just Cher, but like to get yeah, yeah, more yeah. than one person with a shared vision is huge. Um, yeah, it did always have the feel of more of a kind of weird art collective or okay. a dysfunctional family rather than a an actual band. So, okay. yeah, and we we'd all we all worked out quite a long time ago that it wasn't going to be the thing that made our living. That it wasn't going to make us rich. Yeah, but okay. we could. It was it was our choice if we continued to do it, and if we wanted to keep doing it, we we're going to have to realize that you know, we'd have to find different tactics strategies to work out how this was going to happen i mean now we have quite a large back catalog which sort of sells at a steady chug so yeah. every couple of every couple of years we don't spend the money we just like leave it somewhere <laughs> usually under someone's bed or something like that and, uh, <laughs> and then we uh, we get together we, we this this last september we went to spain for uh two weeks and we recorded an album in Valencia. We found a studio there that some other friends of ours had worked at. And it was, you know, it, it has the feel of like a kind of family holiday or something where we actually do what we like doing, which is making up songs. And it's, it was quite low pressure. And now we have the problem of working out what we're going to do with what we did. But uh, Yeah. So the low pressure, low pressure and not trying to make a living off of it. It sounds like that, that really helped you stay connected yeah. to each other and to what you were doing. Well, we wouldn't mind making the living off it. Well, That's not, you know, sure. we haven't excluded that. It's just that if there's a way of doing it where that isn't the, the, the defining goal, like if we, right. yeah. if well, we're and, disappointed with the record sales, I mean, it's like for me being, I'm an artist as well, a visual artist. Mm -hmm. And I was really shocked when I, I didn't really get into that till after I'd been doing punk rock for about 15 years. And then suddenly I was getting art shows in, you know, I got an mm -hmm. art in quite a nice gallery, and and it was in Chicago, and it was just after we'd been dumped by A and M, and we'd had the Virgin experience as well. And I suddenly realised all these business models are exactly the same thing. You have this sort of hierarchy of people who are running the thing, and none of them really know whether what you're doing is any good or not. And the only criterion they have for kind of defining whether it's a success or not is financial. Yeah, and. 
and and they are all afraid to decide say that oh I like this because they think this immediate superior will won't like it then they'll look silly mm-hmm. and it seems to be and I realize oh the art worlds run exactly like the music business you, know, <laughs> uh-huh. you have a bunch of underlings who just answer to one person if that one person says it's good then everything could go ahead then if it doesn't sell that one person is then under threat from someone even higher up the chain. So, and what yeah. what makes it good is if that one person thinks they can sell it or it's sellable. Yeah, or it's sellable, yeah. Or right. if it actually sells. And then if it doesn't sell, then it's not really very good. That's not the way I judge. That's not the way I judge or value what I make. So Yeah. yeah, yeah. How do you judge or value what you make? It works on its own terms, you know. If it works yeah. for me in that moment, I think it's something that's worth putting out into the world is something that's like can become part of uh, particularly with the, the music you know it's, I love the collaborative aspect of making it and I love the way it goes out into the world and it, it affects people uh, mm-hmm. I'm not claiming great you know very ambitious things for me for music but I think it is very very powerful I know music's a big part of my life listen to other people's music not just our own I don't really listen to our own very much but when we're making it we do and it's just mm-hmm. this uh, it's like it's part of a conversation or something I don't know you could you put it out there and it's you get feedback for it and it's an inter- a human a very human interaction you know, communal a conver- yeah, yeah a conversation yeah. I feel like someone else described music uh, another musician described it to us as a conversation too yeah yeah and a conversation that's you know it's got lots of different weird facets to it you know yes. mm-hmm. it's not just I think capitalism's awful <laughs> oh wow that's amazing I never thought of that you know it's more like it can be incredibly subtle I mean, you know I think one of the things too that you had sort of mentioned to mentioned or alluded to um Part of it is you're not with the Mekons, you're not doing as much as you used to do. It's not the thing that you guys count on for your financial, if it happens, great. But you all, at least with you, you have other things going on. You mentioned the paintings you've been in and you've had a number of different bands kind of running. Yeah, yeah. They seem to kind of probably scratch a certain itch for you. So there's a sort of a deep difference. Clearly. You know? <laughs> right. And, yeah. and that seems to be something that you have found that you have at your disposal is the capacity to kind of think, okay, I've got this other idea that I want to flesh out, and then you pursue it. And I like with music is that you can have half an idea and then, you know, you have to toss it into the ring with a bunch of other people. And it yeah. becomes very quickly, things become, you know, you know fleshed out. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I've got a few things I'm doing at the moment because, you know, because I've been doing it so long and there's, there's all these kind of like alleys that were, you know, doors that were kind of like closed or forks in the road you didn't go down. Yeah. And it's like when I'm not doing the Mekons, I can go back and look at some of those things and go, oh, that was that was a kind of weird little interesting period. Maybe we should do some of, do some of that. Yeah, I mean, you even I mean, had a kid's band for a while correct when i had kids of the suitable age to be the audience for it and participate <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as they got too old for it i ditched it immediately <laughs> yeah but so but it was again combining these other parts of your world right yeah well i was we had a kitchen full of you know like horrible children's music you know like mm-hmm. we call it rainbow puppy music and, I just, uh-huh, uh-huh. and my mate rick sherry was just bent devil in a woodpile in chicago and 
he had kids about the same age as my kids and we were just this is ridiculous i hate all this kids music we have to listen to yeah he said we should make some kids music ah. but he wanted to make kids music about what what our kids thought were you know was amusing so it was mostly like bodily functions and uh, totally <laughs> right right yeah i stupid. hear oh um, a fair amount of your music sounds like it's inspired by just what's going on around you, like having kids wanting to make music that was more tolerable for you, but also that would be enjoyable by your kids or the minor strike. It, it, it seems like it's it's reactive. Um, to I just social think environment? I know it's reactive. Exactly. I think it's what I liked about punk rock and what I didn't really get into with music when I was actually like a teenager mm -hmm. when I should have been having the greatest years of my life I thought all the music was very frustrating and boring to me I was more into kind of like Irish folk music and stuff like that I didn't really like the mm -hmm. prog rock heavy metal stuff there's a few bits of things that I quite could appreciate but you know there was a lot of stuff I just thought was just it didn't speak to me in any way that made any sense and then when punk rock happened it was actually a lot of songs people were definitely writing about their situation in the world and the position in the world who's confronting the world head on in the lyrics rather than singing about wizards and elves and stuff like that. Uh -huh. Okay, guilty. In addition to Led Zeppelin, ACDC, and Aerosmith, I was also a Rush fan, who most certainly fell into that Wizards and Elves category. But in my defense, they were considered almost alternative for Z95, Rockford's classic rock station at the time. The other thing, I was way too inside my bitty adolescent brain to believe that country music had any merit, especially given my dad's pushing for the twang. But to imagine the music, such as Rush and Aerosmith and all those that I listened to, being anything but the be-all and end-all would have been heresy. Soon, we'll hear how John refreshingly was able to appreciate his music as just one puzzle piece on a continuous timeline. When I was you from a distance, did you see me? You were standing in a queue, did you see me? You had yellow hair, did you see me? There was a point where we realized that there's the whole you know, history of music out there. Maybe punk rock isn't like year zero and we reinvented the wheel. Maybe there's like, we're just part of a kind of weird, weird continuum, which makes much more sense logically. And uh, so through people we met, I mentioned Terry Nelson, who was a huge sort of honky-tonk music fan. And then we met a guy called Bill Leader, who was the basically the British Alan Lomax, who recorded... Mm -hmm. all the early Bert Jansch records and we ended up accidentally at his studio and we talked to him and his engineer a lot about you know the folk traditions and suddenly it was like yeah that what was interesting and what I was I'd learned at the time in a sort of Marxist fine arts course that I'd been on in was that you know maybe you should be making making art about your immediate experience and stuff you know about and yeah. you know that's the that's the richest vein rather than 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all that kind of built up. And what we noticed about through Terry was that country music didn't have this sort of, it didn't seem like the people like Merle Haggard, George Jones had this great barrier between them and their audience. It almost felt like there was no wall between them, like the songs they were singing and the things they were singing about. I mean, I love Merle Haggard. Never been that keen on the fighting side of me and sort of mm-hmm. populist mm-hmm. right wing stuff, but uh, yeah, the rest of his the rest of his songwriting is inc- I find it incredibly uh, empathetic in the sense that it's almost like his his story is that of his the people he's talking about. You know, again, but going back to the seventies, there just seemed to be a huge barrier between the audience and the performer. Yeah, like stadium rock things coming around and people singing about stuff that didn't really bear any any relation to the world that you lived in. I love that you, as as you were putting this together, were realizing that you were part of this much bigger history, that there was a, these other things that were happening really great in that it really helped you make that, that connection and to see that, what you just described. We were, we were art students and I think we had a... We were disposed to sort of thinking of things. We took things very seriously, and certain things were very important. Mm-hmm. And there was a kind of movement in the eighties in in England called they called it cow punk, and it was kind of like a lot of British kids dressing up in cowboy outfits, and mm-hmm. playing like yeehaw, and almost like a kitsch sort of like making fun of country music. We were very very offended by that. Because mm-hmm. we we took people like Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers as sort of like we thought of more like sort of Old Testament prophets or something like you know <laughs> these, these yeah. wise men that we should be like revered and listened to and someone like Johnny Cash you know like yeah. actually yeah. got to meet Johnny Cash in the late eighties after and we were immersed in this kind of process of trying to like change from being a primitive punk rock band into something. We didn't know what we were trying to be really, but it was it was apparent that there was more out there. Yeah. And then to suddenly meet Johnny Cash was really wild. I can say now that I totally agree with the idea that country music is so much more accessible than elves and wizards. And country music and punk music are exactly the same. It's just that there happens to be an ocean between them. Up next, we jump into discussing John's painting and his connection with the season one Kites and Strings guest. I was just getting up and thinking of going to my painting studio when I remembered I had. <laughs> when I look at your paintings and um, and you're, I think you're, you have stuff at Yard Dog or you've had some stuff at Yard Dog in Austin. Yeah, it's a gallery in uh, Austin, Texas. Um, we started there in 1996 was the first time we went there. So, yeah, I think Jenny Hart, huh? one of our earlier interviews in the season oh, one. Jenny, the, 
the embroiderer. Yeah, yeah. She's a yeah, her dog. Yeah, I love Jenny. Yeah. She's yeah. fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love when our guests know each other. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, she's fantastic. Yeah. And I she was doing stuff with the art dog very, very early on. Right, right. Yeah, because I and when I saw that in your when I'm looking at your bio and stuff, it's like, wait a minute, there's a connection there. Um, so you're still oh, yeah. painting. And when I mentioned the term like alt country, I think your your paintings seem like the embodiment of sort of that alt country. It's sort of these country themes. Well, it's been with- it's been nice over the years because I mean that was where I started going with mm-hmm. the artwork. And I, you know, I was like I said, I was an art student in Leeds in '76, and punk rock happened, and we sort of threw away our brushes, and that was mm-hmm. the art was making the music, I think. And then 15 years later, I kind of really wanted to get back into making some sort of visual art. I had no just no confidence or didn't know what I would do. You know, I just thought it's a good idea having been dumped by a record label that maybe now I would, uh, I would have some sort of like other, other thing quiver, you know, another arrow in my quiver. Like I would actually have a, I would make some visual art and I had to really think about what it would be. And, uh, I was very drawn to, um, kind of medieval paintings. And I really wanted to do something, as I said, about I wanted to make something about, my immediate environment and what I've been through. And it, it felt like maybe I'm going to make some art about the music business and about music. Yeah. Yeah. Which was kind of like crossing out of one box into another. And it's been, and- it's been kind of a nice way to do it because I'm like to a lot of people, I'm just like, Oh, this musician who paints a bit as well. And then so the people in the art world, I'm kind of like this artist, but he's in bands. Yeah. So it's kind of like nobody's fully ever wanted to claim me huh. in any sort of way. So I can just kind of, I can putter around on the fringes and do whatever I want to do. You just seem like <laughs> a creative person that is just making. And whether it comes out sonically yeah. or whether it comes out visually, yeah. it just is coming out. Well, find the- quite a great re- release from, from that, you know. Yeah. yeah. Your, your art is such a blend of your what you your musical history as i've learned it from talking to you today and visual art i can really see the merger yeah i mean i think it comes from i've been told i was told once by a brain expert that this is absolute bullshit but i think it comes from the same part of my brain but he says no 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 different parts of your brain absolutely and i'm going well maybe the way i do music isn't quite right and maybe the way i do art isn't quite right but (laughs) Playing music and writing songs in the 80s kind of prepared me for making visual art in the 90s because yeah. all I had to do was make that connection that maybe they were the same thing. And the, the one I was paralyzed in one field and extremely prolific in the other field and suddenly realizing all I got to do is kick the wall down and make them the same thing. I love that. The songs are like paintings. The paintings are like songs. I can see it. Like I can really, really see it, and I can see the country, the politics. That was my cheap trick that I did. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, it. Yeah. It's... Well, I think those things are kind of inescapable, and I thought, you know, just the sort of music we were getting into with the when we, you know, we weren't really trying to play honky tonk music, but I certainly loved all the old photographs of the, of the, you know, the and the, the the outfits they wore, and you think of the rise of like the singing cowboy covered in rhinestones. That was against the backdrop of the, you know, the depression and rural poverty. It's 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 a kind of great American story, and I was living in America, yeah, and I was fascinated by America, and then also had the, you know, had the uh, good fortune to 
run into a bunch of people who I kind of learned from and talked to a lot who were from that kind of era. There was a band called the Sundowners in town here in Chicago. And they were guys who ended up in Chicago because it was the kind of, uh, it was like the focus of country music in the 1930s. And they'd come up in the 50s at the tail end of that. And, uh, you know, and they, they played country and Western music. And you know, first time I, one of the first times I was in Chicago, Mekons ended up on stage with them. Wow. Because we'd been to a we'd been to a Western Wear store and Alcala's on Chicago Avenue and bought <laughs> loads of shirts and hats and everything. <laughs> Just like British people, British guys in a band, what would they do? You know? I love everything so, about this. We stumble into a club at like one in the morning after we played the I think we played the Cubby Bear and then we went downtown to the R and R ranch and these people wanted to take us there to see this authentic country and western band and they they did do country and western and i love it they were became really good friends of ours and um they actually played played my wedding in 1992 and, <laughs> but they'd always get me up on stage and i was like i saw and after, after the first experience of that doing that and being absolute rubbish i learned a bunch of country songs so i could if ever they called me up i could get up and do something that's why we formed the wake up brothers because I basically learned all these songs. I love that you were open to that. I mean, I just remember me as a young adult, I would have been like a dick <laughs> about like these other musics and, and stuff like no, that. No, I know. I've got, I've got a friend who was, I, I talked to him a lot about that. Growing up in America, and you know, we didn't really have country music. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know I liked country music. But then basically I listened to Tom Jones now. <laughs> my, my grandmother and my aunties and my mum all used to listen to it all the time. And it sounds like Green Green Grass at Home. It's just a straight country song. But I thought that was like traditional Welsh music or something. You know. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, you, over here, and I know that was a big battle. My mate Tim Tutton, who runs the hideout, always talks about it. His dad telling him, like, you should be listening to George Jones and Merle Hagen. He'd be like, I don't listen to that. Right. Redneck crap. Yeah. You should listen to, you know, Boston. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> that was that was my growing and up. And now he's, like, deeply embarrassed about the fact that his dad was trying to set him straight at a really early age. What's well, funny, <laughs> I, I have at least one song written about that. <laughs> Just that thing. Oh, really? My dad died well before I kind of developed my appreciation for this other music. And I, the name of the, right. the name of the song is I have a crush on Emmy Lou, you know, thinking of Emmy Lou oh. Harris. And I, and there's a line. I shared a microphone with her the other night. Oh, <laughs> amazing. Oh, be still my heart. I love oh. it when Steve's crush has become a part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. She's a very attractive woman. I have to say. She's amazing on so many levels, but wow. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy just sharing existence on this planet at the same time with Emmy Lou Harris. But to share a microphone with her, I don't know what I'd do. I know I'd be getting the big old I told you so look from my dad. Fast forward, because now you're doing some things. I know you're 
you're I, I, there's something that you're doing here locally. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming down for Chris Castaneda's over the years. He's brought me in. He was in Beverly for a while, yeah, so I got yeah. involved with that. Did a bunch of gigs down in Beverly. Then when he moved to Homewood, he said, would you consider coming to Homewood? I was like, yeah, why, <laughs> why, wouldn't, why wouldn't I? Well, yeah, and we have connected because he's part of this Homewood Arts Council, and I do a thing called Trail Mix, uh, which is a, right. a concert series. And So you're doing, you're playing, and you're talking, and you're, what, do you, what are you, what is that you're doing? I play songs and ramble endlessly between them. Okay. <laughs> Sounds great. Excellent. Especially if I'm on my... If I'm on my own, it's uh-huh. like makes it makes for more entertaining time for the audience than just some guy banging and shouting. It's like you know, yeah. I can tell some stories as well. So. It's not enough. Ooh, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. Sat in a trap to confirm that your fears are correct. For attention that meets its predictable end For up to betrayal is only one path to be found When there's not enough, not enough love to go around Okay, so John had kind of an issue with his phone and was booted off the line for a few minutes. But Catherine and I continued our talk. This break allows me to share some more of John's recent music. And when he comes back, we're going to discuss how welcome it is for those of us who like words in their music to have venues that actually encourage listening to the music and the words. Sins of the father, the mother of rejection We don't seek forgiveness, no, that's not the reason we cry We wanna be held, but mostly we wanna be right His paintings are really cool. I, yeah. Um, and I, I definitely see kind of a similarity between his stuff and Jenny Hart. Oh, yeah. Honest. It's interesting. I, like, the way he was talking about different music genres. Um, I was thinking about music as a tool for connection or as a form of connection, not a tool for, mm-hmm. a form of, that he was talking about. And how some people connect through fantasy, mm-hmm. through, like, the elves and the wizards and the, right. the all of that. Or even the fantasy of, like stardom and celebrity which i think a lot of pop music and hip-hop music right right now is kind of feeding and then there's people who are connecting through their lived experience in the world and i had never really thought about this connection between country music and punk rock being Mm -hmm. like country music is hey here here is a story about my experience right now punk rock is like hey here's my opinion on what's going on in the world right now um and just the different ways that, that people connect with each other and with the world and with me through music, how we see yeah. that. There's so many similar similarities, but 
as he did, he bridged them. Whereas mm-hmm. a, a lot of people would have, you know, st- stood on the other side of the fence saying, fuck you to the, you know, the oh, country totally, music. Or, totally. Country I'm too music. cool for your country music. But right. I also appreciate that he's from the UK. So mm-hmm. there's a totally different relationship between con- punk rock and country music. Like the UK is the birth of punk rock. Right, right. The US is the birth of country music. And, and so not having any... um. So, so like, there's just a different association with it. Uh-huh. Than... Yeah, well, and the other piece, too, is the music imported from the States, mm-hmm. right, over in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's just all the music that comes over. They think that there's some type of connection between all of this stuff in the States, but it's actually coming from a very yeah different mindset. Yeah. Oh, here he comes on. Hey, John. <laughs> this is useless. So sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> What we were talking about, John, just to pick up where we left off, so there's some through way of is is being on stage and kind of engaging and telling stories and talking between songs. And what really stood out to me is something you talked about a lot earlier about connection. And I really, really appreciate when I go to a concert and I actually feel connected with the musician, either because I can feel their presence in the room or because they're, they're sharing some, some stories or something they're wanting to, it's clear they want to be there to be with the, the crowd, not just make whatever cash they make that night. Well, I think what's been interesting for me, a great, great thing that sort of popped up over recent years has been like a house concert, you know, and it's, cutting out the middleman and you don't end up playing through a deafening PA in a bar room. I mean, it's really worked for me as someone who writes songs that are kind of wordy and and I've managed to sort of work out a way to accompany myself in primitive fashion mm-hmm. on acoustic guitar and sing the songs. I like the idea of people being able to hear the words and being able to see everyone rather than playing to the stage lights and out into a sort of the dark yeah. I love playing with the Waco Brothers, loud rock band, but I think people are really surprised when they, they hear the words to those songs. We we'll often mm-hmm. do Waco Brothers songs when we do the house parties. It's, <laughs> but uh, it's it has been nice. I did one you know, the other night. It gives you a little bit of freedom to try, try yeah. some things that you wouldn't normally do. So I played a bunch of songs of mine, some new ones and some old ones I hadn't hadn't really done. Mm. And it, it was really enjoyable. You know, people, people seem to connect with it. Well, and, and I'm sure, too, in those smaller settings, you get to have those connections with people between sets and after the show, and you get to hear some of that, you know, the comments. Like, wow, there's words, there's lyrics. Yeah, and I think the, the pandemic was, in a way, respo- a little bit responsible for that because we had to mm-hmm. scale down things down if we wanted to do anything. It all kind of made sense. It's like, well, well, whatever you do, it's kind of, like, worth it, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. No, I just think it's it's great that you're finding those venues those outlets those places for you to to play and to actually have your lyrics be heard that's an important yeah component. i wouldn't say you people come to hear me play the guitar put it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was great having you on today and yes. um to, to get to talk to you and hear about all this amazing stuff uh at some point in time i'm sure we'll be in touch thank you john it was good to meet you cheers bye 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 What an honor it was talking to one of the founders of punk rock, and one who pushed the envelope by blending folk and country music with punk music, and also an amazing visual artist. Use your interwebs machine to check out all of his sonic and visual endeavors. And if you're in Chicagoland on Monday, February the 13th, the Homewood Arts Council is featuring that solo acoustic show at Rabbit Brewing. 
We'll make sure pertinent links are in the episode description. Note too that you can learn more about Kites and Strings by visiting our website, www.kitesandstrings.com, and you can find us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have comments, thoughts, ideas for Kites and Strings, please hit up our email at kitesandstringspodcast at gmail.com. And if you're so inclined, and we would be so happy if you did, you can find Kites and Strings on Patreon.com. There, a pledge of just a few dollars a month will go a long way in helping us keep this kite in flight. If you're unable to do that, we understand. A totally free option for sharing the love is to leave positive comments and to rate us on sites like Apple Podcasts. And you can take the really easy approach by simply telling a friend to check us out. Kites and Strings theme music is by Harrison Amir, and all other music in today's episode featured our guest John Langford, following his career from the Mekons to the Waco Brothers up to more current recordings. Today's show was produced and edited by me, Steve Plume, at Turning Zones Counseling, Inc. Be safe.